So all week long I was um, thinking about where to go in our progression of what did the Buddha teach. And uh, our plan is to talk about, was to talk about, and is evolving as where was he born historically, what was his growing up like, we did that. What was his um, coming out, going out into homelessness like? And then what did he teach as a result of his enlightenment? What did he understand? And then, I hope in the next month, how did those teachings get spread throughout um, throughout uh, Asia? And how did they make it over here? And how are we changing it? That seems to be what's in all the textbooks these days. I just got a brand new textbook in the mail. came from Oxford Press. The author is Donald Mitchell. I've been reading it. It's funny to study. It's not funny. It's odd to find myself studying a um, a serious college text on Buddhism because I didn't read a college text on Buddhism when I was in college. I uh, began to study mindfulness when I was 40, and I studied it um, anecdotally from my teachers in Dharma talks. Uh, I didn't know the whole history of the growth of Buddhism and um how, the, how Tibetan Buddhism evolved, or Chan Buddhism in China, and uh, Korean Buddhism, Zen Buddhism. Don't, didn't know how they were all different. Didn't know about the, uh, uh, the, the evolution of the Pali Canon. I really didn't begin to study mindfulness, practice mindfulness, in order to study Buddhism. Actually, it was kind of surprising to me Later on, when people came and wondered about how could I be a Buddhist as well as a Jew, I hadn't actually thought about taking on a new religion uh, or departing from a religion. I had thought about studying mindfulness and practicing and studying Buddhism as practicing. And uh, somebody said the other day in some class, was there anything that you could say it could magically, automatically make you a Buddhist without your sort of a Buddhist unaware. Like if you took the precepts, would that accidentally have converted you to being a Buddhist and then not being what you were before? Um, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I think you, that it, it, it means something to me like being a being a realist, being awake, being a practitioner of the truth, being uh, dedicated to a certain path of uh, development that leads to leading an awakened life. So I started by, by looking at this uh, book about Buddhism that came in the mail. Um, they sent it to me because I wrote a piece in it. They had written to me and said, you're a Theravada teacher. Why don't you say something? Tell a little story about being a Theravada teacher. Um, tell, tell a story that can go in a Theravada chapter, because you know there are three main lineages of Buddhism, the Theravada path being the earliest. Theravada, I'm happy to say, is, is a translation of the path of the elders, the teachings of the elders, the path of the elders, sometimes called Hinayana, which means a small raft, as opposed to Mahayana, which means a big raft, and which gives the idea that somehow it's uh, an elitist raft or um, only for a few people raft. And in the development of Buddhism, Mahayana means the great raft. This is now a practice for a lot of people. So this is just uh, two paragraphs. and This is a true story. It happened uh, a number of years ago. I noticed a young man making his way toward me through the crowd at a Sunday night meet-your-neighbors party at a ski condominium. My parents just met you, he said, nodding in the direction of a couple I'd talked with earlier, and they said you were a Buddhist teacher. I'm studying Buddhism in my world religions class. What kind of a Buddhist are you? <laughs> I teach at Spirit Rock Meditation Center, I replied. The program is based on mindfulness and metta, loving kindness. The principal meditation is practiced by the Buddha in the Pali Canon. Oh, I see, he said. That's Theravada Buddhism, isn't it? Yes, it is, I replied. Is it true, he asked, that those were the selfish Buddhists <laughs> who were only interested in their own enlightenment and not in the liberation of all beings? 
I hope that I did not wince <laughs> at what I recognized as a not uncommon survey, te survey textbook shorthand oh. differentiation of Hinayana and Mahayana traditions. It is true that the Buddha was a monk, and in keeping with the culture of his time, which considered the renunciate path as ideal for spiritual seekers, he did encourage people to go forth into homelessness as a support for their practice. It's also true that he taught lay people, ordinary householders, as well as kings. His message of liberation for all beings is that craving is the cause of suffering, that the end of suffering is possible, that peace is possible in this very life, that insight leads to wisdom which manifests as compassion on behalf of all beings. This message that Theravada proclaims has remained central to Buddhism for the 2,500 years of its evolution through different cultures and different times. I think that's true. When I meet together with, uh, when we have uh, Buddhist conferences where we have uh, representatives of all the lineages, people have different practices and different costumes and different cosmologies even, and uh, different um, <laughs> emphases. But I think fundamentally everyone will agree on what the Buddha said was his central teaching that um, he said, I came to teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. My friend Sally sometimes says that in a Dharma talk and she tells it in a, in a very funny way. She'll say, the Buddha said, I came to teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And then she'll pause and she'll say, Oh, it sounds to me like two things. But actually, it's one thing, suffering and the end of suffering, because, you know, it's just a sweet thing to say. But, it, but, but in the teaching of clinging, which causes suffering, and non-clinging, letting go. And I think that that's really... Um, it's so clear when you see that, that it's not a Buddhist truth, it's a truth truth. How many people here know the serenity prayer? You want to say it? Sound to you pretty much like don't fight. Fix what you can. Accept what you can and pay attention so you know which is which. That's what it all seems to me. When I read, I, and I am reading along in this book, it's a serious textbook, it says the most fundamental teaching of the Buddha is ahimsa, non-violence, demanding that things be another way than the only way that they can be, is violence. Does a violence to yourself. Does a violence to... Everything. It's just not, it's creating more troubles. So I think not only, I don't think that the serenity prayer came from the Buddha. I think the serenity prayer and the Buddha's teaching and every teaching of this is the way things are and we have nothing to do but to surrender. We would say it in a, in a Western God-framed idiom. We'd say this is the will of God. There's nothing that can be done which doesn't mean that we, um, it means we are wise, not that we are defeated. I wanted to show you a photo about, uh, and, and I, I won't tell you where this photo was taken, but what do you think? Here's a photo. I'll put it up. Can you see it? Is it big enough? Yeah, why don't, why don't you be the passer around her? Or, or, here, here are two of them. Okay. I mean, give one to Barbara, she'll pass around here or something. This might give it away for some people. Here's another picture. It's so it's a picture of a yellow room. It's a round yellow room. It's a uh, oval-shaped yellow room with people sitting on uh, black chairs that look quite comfortable, actually. And black zafus. What do you think it is? 
What's your guess? Looks like a meditation room, right? Yeah. Hmm? It's a meditation room. <coughs> so do you think it's um, it's contemporary, right? Mm-hmm. Contemporary furniture. What what are the clues? The zafus are black. What, what is that a clue? Zen. So it looks like a little zen. What else? But it's got chairs. chairs. Yeah, so it's just chairs. a little zen. So <laughs> what? Is... <laughs> it's got chairs. Uh, so it probably means it's in the West, right? Where people are not so used to sitting on zafus. But they're black chairs. All right. What else? Anybody recognize the person in it? Oh, there's a person in one of them. The person in one of them with the red shirt. Who has the one with the people in it? Okay. The person with the red shirt with the the beautiful woman with the gray hair and the red shirt is Tamara Engel. Tamara Engel uh, is a mindfulness practitioner who's uh, one of the teachers in uh, New York Insight. So now we know that these pictures are taken probably in New York City in some venue where Tamara Engel teaches. So not to prolong it, because it's not that amazing. It could be anywhere. (laughs) But it's the seventh floor of the Jewish Community Center on Amsterdam Avenue and 78th Street. Because what is happening in the world to Buddhism is that it is having the same uh, effect in this culture, I think, as it has had on every culture into which it has moved in 2,500 years. It's moved into a culture with established cultural traditions and communities and uh, ways of behaving, even religious forms of behaving. <laughs> and it hasn't dis- and it has disappeared as Buddhism and moved into those religious forms of behaving. And then sometimes it moved into those forms, and it stayed uh, with Buddhism in its name, so that it moved into Tibet and became, uh, took what was the the religious form of, uh, uh, what was the form of uh, Tibetan religion, and it came out as Tibetan Buddhism. And it moved into China, where there were very strong influences of Taoism and Confucianism, and it came out as Chan Buddhism. And it moved into uh, Japan, uh, and this is over hundreds of years, because certainly the flow of information was much slower, and primarily by word of mouth, moved into Japan into a culture very much shaped by uh, the traditions and styles of... um, uh, the samurai culture that was there at the time, very much affected by uh, by Shinto formality, and it became Zen Buddhism, uh, and uh, it came out. It stayed the least changed from the time of the Buddha in the countries of Southeast Asia, and some scholars think that that's because uh, those co- those countries changed the least. They're uh, the, they are the least modern, the most agrarian, they, uh, they are the least uh, modern in their development, so that uh, the form of uh, Theravada Buddhism remains most alive in Southeast Asia and Burma and Ta- Ta- uh, Laos and Thailand and Sri Lanka and um, Cambodia. Vietnam. But here it comes to the United States now, 2,500 years later, and makes its way into Spirit Rock Center, which is a Buddhist center. You'll notice that our envelopes say uh, Spirit Rock Meditation Center in the Buddhist tradition. There's been a lot of discussion here about whether this is a Buddhist meditation center or a center in the Buddhist tradition. And actually, it's in the Buddhist tradition. We have all these Buddhas around here. We tell Buddhist <laughs> stories. Um, so it's definitely a representation of in the Buddhist tradition. We use that lexicon here to tell stories and to explain about the ways in which the heart gets caught or gets free. And we use the teachings of the Buddha. 
uh, it's particularly written that way on the stationery to say that it's a meditation center where we teach mindfulness and loving kindness in that tradition, leaving it open for people who feel themselves religiously connected to other religious traditions to not feel a disconnect and to come here, as has always been true, and use these teachings as a practice for waking up the heart and seeing the truth and enhancing their own sense of being alive in the world. The, one of the most important stories for me of the Buddha is that somebody said to him at some point um, when he was being venerated as the spiritual teacher that he was, they said, uh, are you a god? And he said, no. And he said, oh, are you a regular person then? And he said, no. And they said, well, what are you then? And he said, I'm awake. And really, that's, I think, a tremendously crucial teaching. We, th- we think about when we get up in the morning, we're awake. But I think we're just not, not any more somnolent. I don't know if we're awake. I don't know if we're awake. Do you know what I think we get awake? We get awake either when the mind settles down in a formal practice like this, where we actually practice to settle the mind down and wake it up, or when we make it awake, you know. On the morning of September 11th, we all got woke up, really. I think we're still quite woken up from it. Um, Not only woken up to, (gasps) we're in danger. I don't think that's the woke up that would be the best helpful wake up. I think we were in danger before it and... But the world is in danger, not we are in danger. The whole world is in danger of not paying attention enough to keeping the globe alive and monitoring the air and the water so that three generations from now be able to drink and breathe. Uh, I think more than that, if we're awake at all from that, we got to see the dire sequelae of unrecognized greed and hatred and delusion and that maybe it was the kind of thing that led us to see, not just us, but the whole world, that unless we do something really substantial about changing the patterns, the unrecognized patterns of human hearts, we could be in some very big trouble. I, um, well, maybe I'm not going to do these notes that I brought. Maybe I'll do this instead. There's an article in this week's New Yorker, and it's a man sitting in his office. It's kind of a corporate office. You can see it's New York, and the back is the Empire State Building. It's got a, you know, lots of books in the bookshelves. An important-looking office with a bust of some probably important person who I don't recognize in his office, but it's meant to show that this is a person of some authority. And he's got a paper in his hand, he's considering what he should do, and he's saying, hmm, what would Satan do? Uh, so, so we're all laughing because there's been a rash of books, you know, about what would. Now, what I want to bring up is, uh, he's, looking at that, we all laugh. There's a book in the, you all know this book, What Would Jesus Do?, there's a book out in our bookstore, which I brought in with me this morning, which I honestly hadn't looked into the contents of until I brought it in because I didn't like the cover. First of all, I thought, oh. first of all, it says, the, the name of the book is What Would Buddha Do? So it, it, it uh, truth to tell, annoyed my um, editorial ear because that wasn't his name. So you'd have to say, What Would The Buddha Do? Can't understand how it got by his editor. But, oh, yes, it is a his. Anyway, oh, it wasn't nice to say, but what would the Buddha do? Or what would a Buddha do? His name was Siddhartha Gautama. He was called, um, a Buddha is someone who woke up. It's an enlightened person. So you could say, what would a sage do? What would a wise person do? A sage, a wise person, not sage. Anyway, uh, what would a wise person do? But in in truth, I started to read it as we were sitting here. It's not so bad. (laughs) Um, 
Okay, what do you think? Here, we can do the point of this would, and what would Satan do? I think recognizes that the main question is uh, the, um, or perhaps the main practice of non-harming ahimsa, on which all of what the Buddha taught is based, is founded upon the the premise that you could think about what to do. What should I do means I'm I'm not doing impulsively or instinctively. If we did things instinctively, we would just do them. You know, all the times I I try to explain this to my grandchildren, frequently I'm telling you these um, cartoons. People, I have a lot of cartoon anthologies, and I explain them to my grandchildren because I'm trying to find if any of them have the same love of cartoons that I do. And uh, so the principal cartoon that I say is, why is this funny? And we look at a cartoon, uh, and it's got a fishbowl, and uh, the, we, the person has just opened the door, there's a fishbowl, there's no fish in it. Next to it is a cat. Uh, next to the cat is a fish skeleton, and the cat is licking his chops looking very satisfied. And uh, the, the caption is always, aren't you ashamed of yourself? And uh, so we have to talk about with my grandchildren, is the cat ashamed of herself? Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the, the reason the joke is funny is that the cat is not ashamed of herself. That's what cats do. They don't get in there and think, hmm, on the one hand, I feel like having this fish, but on the other hand, uh, all taking of life is a form of violence, and I am consecrated. I, I, it's, a, it's a human thing to do, so that it becomes a funny thing. So even the, the, the very cartoon, What Would Satan Do?, is funny because, and, and, and poignant and appropriate, because it means we have the capability to reflect should I do this or not? We are not, we are not cats or dogs or... We have, reflective, we have reflective thought. We can think things over and decide. Actually, what the Buddha did teach about that is you ought to think in advance. This is in a sutta called Instructions to Rahula. He said you ought to think in advance before you're doing something. Is this what I'm about to do for the benefit of myself and for all beings? And if it is, Okay. And in the middle of doing it, is this what I'm in the middle of doing for the benefit of myself and for all beings? Okay. Is this what I just did? Was it for the benefit of myself and all beings? Okay. If at any point in that chain it's not okay, you can stop. The best, of course, is if you stop before and nobody knows about it and nobody's discommoded. Or in the middle, you can say, whoops, I'm in the middle of making a mistake and doing something foolish. Please forgive me. Let's just roll this back a little bit. Can you think of some, like a, like from a play or a movie or a, just somewhere where someone almost does something bad and then doesn't? <laughs> well, maybe that's the tension in plays. You know, there are certain plays that I can barely stand because you know that once again they're going to do this terrible thing, you know. Can you tell, tell, tell me what, I'll tell you what really, well, you tell me, I'll give you an example. I cannot bear it that Iago is so awful, you know, and Otello. Maybe this time Iago will catch himself in his lust for power and, and he won't do it. Or um, Otello. Will think it over as he's about to to strangle Desdemona, and I'll think, wait a minute, maybe I didn't check out the facts. <coughs> Don't you think to yourself, if he could just hold on a second, uh, what else? Um, I think in the cartoon um, uh, Charlie Brown. Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether they still have it, but Lucy used to hold the football mm-hmm. and and say, "Come on, Charlie, you know you can do it." And then um, 
he would trust that the foot, she would keep it there, and then just as he, the moment of impact when he would kick it, she would take it away. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and she was always asking him to trust her the next time, the yeah. next time to trust her that she would do it, and she consistently didn't, but he would consistently oh. trust that maybe this would be the time she would. Yeah, and so when you look at it, you are consistently wanting for her to, this time, leave it there. Because <laughs> he'd fall flat on his face. Yeah, laugh. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody told me they were watching the Olympics the other night. You want so much for people to do it right. You even feel bad on their behalf when you do it wrong. Someone was telling me they were watching the um, snowboarding in that pipeline, kind of snowboarding, awarding the honors. The, and I, maybe all three of the winners, I didn't see it, were Americans. I, uh, and they were all very young, uh, three very young boys. And they had these really spiffy uh, snowboarding costumes on with hats, you know. And, and they were up on the podium and they started to play the Star Spangled Banner. And the person who told me said, I was sending vibes into the TV. Take the hat off. <laughs> Probably the whole of America was saying, Take the hat off. <laughs> because we want so much for people to do. The right thing. It feels bad on us if somebody else is. That, yeah, they took off. Huh? So I'll just I'll, I'll ask you one of these here. What would the What would the Buddha do when family comes to visit? Uh, okay. Everybody finds that very funny. <laughs> okay, so uh, listen, you get uh, what you get. What half a minute to think? Think. You know, it's got a sutta here that, well, that they quote, but maybe it's really in. They really do quote the. (laughs) (coughs) Hmm. Okay. (laughs) That's honestly a sutta. I didn't think so. So, who thinks? Take a guess. I can't. I can't resist making a joke, but giving them their bowl and telling them to practice all the <laughs> 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 Let's see if it says that. <laughs> da, 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 da. Now I'm going to see if Susan Felix wins a trip around the world or not. <laughs> This says, from a certain sutta, that it says, we all know how difficult family can be. Nah. Especially around the holidays when everyone is together for an eternity. When when relatives descend like locusts, the Buddha Buddha would not demand that we be perfect hosts. What he tells us in this particular thing, treating family, this is apparently a sutta, treating family as well as you can when they come to visit is good and fortunate because it leads to good here and in the next world. Mm. Treat your family as well as you can. This is obvious and we should give no less. Second, your efforts will be rewarded not only in the blessings of a happier family, but in a future that you can't even imagine. Mm. Now actually that's a good thought because I don't think, I don't think too much about what's going to happen to me in the next life. It might be important for me to do that, but that's not a compelling thing for me to think about. I think about what's happening to me in this life. But I think what happens to me in this life is conditioned very much by how I behave moment to moment. I, te- I tend to think of the fruits of karma as being immediate. If I am, if I am feeling, oh dear, here come these folks, 
I'll have to deal with them, and I'm stealing my heart against them. I'm already in pain. If I'm telling a few people, can you believe it? My in-laws are coming for three days. It's going to be terrible. I'm making myself, again, more uncomfortable, and also making my, the people that I told uncomfortable, uh, who will then tell somebody else, could you, could you imagine? Sylvia is stuck with her in-laws. Thereby <laughs> spreading three, you know, three compounded words. Imagine if everybody in the world got up tomorrow and said only good on everybody else. I was thinking this morning, if someone said to me, you can be on TV, ready, set, go, make a prayer. Do Buddhists pray? Yes, they do. Do they pray to somebody? Some of them do and some of them don't. Some of them certainly in, in religious Buddhist traditions pray to the Buddha and all the Buddhas of all times on all realms to intervene and to intercede on their behalf for uh, for prosperity or fertility or uh, crops or uh, whatever it is uh, that people want, that people pray for. It's nice to feel. Uh, there's a monk that I know and uh, asked about, uh, do you suppose there's something out there that actually hears prayers, <coughs> some ones or some things? And uh, I had expected a very Buddhist answer that... Uh, uh, Everything depends on karma, and uh, there isn't anything here or thing there. So I'd expected an emptiness to answer and a karma answer. And he said, we have no idea what's out there. And I liked that so much. That was such a spacious answer. No idea what's out there. Because that's really true. It doesn't even mean if there's something out there that it would do something for us. But we have no idea. And it feels good to say, I wish on behalf of all my children that their lives thrive, that their work is prosperous, that their families are well. Who here doesn't wish that? Everybody wishes that. So I had this fantasy that if someone said, uh, okay, ready, set, go, you get a minute on national TV to lead the country in prayer, what would you say? And I thought to myself, I'd probably say, May every person in this world get up tomorrow morning loving everyone in their family and everyone in their town and treating everyone like they were the most wonderful person that they met. And then may that spirit pass through their localities into their larger areas of living. And may people discover that human beings are the happiest when they're loving each other. That'd probably take up a minute. But if people would discover that they're actually the happiest when they have no one out of their heart, that forgiveness is the only possible liberating move, we'd have a whole new world. This is the beginning of the Dhammapada. You know, see, it was good to bring all these papers. I didn't know what order I was going to do them, but <clears throat> these are the first two twin verses of the Dhammapada. Dhammapada is a collection of uh, sayings of the Buddha. Do you know that they didn't write down what the Buddha said for about 500 years? They had a convocation right after he died. They had the first great assembly where they had presumably 500 arhats, 500 fully um, uh, realized monks come together and agree on what the Buddha had taught as far as the rules of behavior, and what he had taught in terms of um, scripture and understanding, doctrine. Um, actually, it's interesting because in, as I read this book of the history of Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism is very, very strong on codes of behavior and virtue. I, I sense it more strongly on the virtue, cultivation of virtue, than the cultivation of wisdom. I actually feel strongly <clears throat> that they're the that they're the two, uh, they are two of the three entrances, maybe the two entrances, into a, a liberated mind and a, a gracious heart. But uh, in, uh, in teaching, in, in, in Western meditation teaching settings, we have tended to teach meditation and mention virtue practice incidentally. We mention it uh, 
as a as a kind of a given, well, it'd be very good to behave virtuously. Um, because if you want to meditate and your mind is filled with guilt, it'll be hard to meditate. So that the virtue, uh, at least as I understood it, is a beginning meditator, and that's 25 years ago, and maybe I understood wrong, but whatever, was seen as uh, it's a good thing to behave virtuously on behalf of your own peace of mind so that you could meditate and then see clearly and become wise. Now, it goes on to say, if you became wise and you saw the suffering inherent in uh, just in being alive and the, the complications of suffering that, that accrue from greed, hatred, and delusion, from that wise, clear-seeing place, the only possible response of your heart would be the complete uh, response of kindness and compassion that you could not possibly do anything that was immoral to add to that already vast amount of, of pain and suffering in the world. It's actually said that a person who's had a certain level of awareness would find it impossible to break a precept. If you have seen X in your meditation, you cannot break a precept. So I've had lots of discussions with my friends. Did you, first of all, did you have that experience? Such and such an experience of seeing clearly. Yeah, yeah, I think I did. Yeah, everybody thinks. Well, are you are you completely uh, spotless? You know, do you never make a moral mistake? People say I make mistakes. They say I make mistakes, but I know about them sooner and I clean them up faster. They hurt more. It's as if what it does, I think for myself. What it does is it fine-tunes the morality meter in there that's keeping a list. I am convinced, by the way, that we have an endless backfile of uh, uh, moral breaches that we just uh, that are in there forever. Not even heavy ones. I mean, the heavy ones we remember. And we try to atone for and make better. But even light ones, you know? Think about it. I remembered a, um, an unkindness that I did to someone 50 years ago, a couple of years ago. It was a little unkindness. It was the kind of a thing that a, uh, that a 15-year-old um, uh, awkward adolescent might do. But I didn't feel good when I did it, and I didn't feel good when I remembered it a few years ago either. And I didn't remember it for 50 years in between. But it was in there for 50 years. And you think, where is that readout? You know, where does it stay? Like in old mail or old files? Or, you know, could you, you know, like in a, computer, if you, in a computer, if you could say, take all the old files, take them over, put them in the trash, and delete, that would be great. But you can't delete it just like that. It's in there until somehow. I have a great faith in the fact that through my meditation uh, experience, I find that when I sit down all the time, there is a spontaneous moral inventory. Isn't there with you? That if you sit long enough, you think, not even heavy. I mean, I'm sure we all live quite moral lives. But I'd be sitting and I'd think, ah, I did tell so-and-so I'd call back. And, ah, I should have talked a little bit more to that person. They really needed it. Probably I shouldn't have turned down that invitation. It just seemed a little lot, but I could have done it. It would have been worthwhile. And it's as if the heart waits to correct the mistakes that I forge forward and make. And it, uh, unfortunately, it lets me forge forward a lot if I'm not careful. But it keeps a record. So if I sit down every once in a while, it'll give me the, the file card that says, fix this, fix this, fix this, fix this. <laughs> so it says, maybe try to stay up along with the file card. But it keeps the file card back going forever and ever. Um, it's so amazing to me. And um, so back to that equation again. I had the thought, 
people would say, we really should behave morally, here are the moral codes, so that the mind will be relaxed, so that we'll be able to meditate, so that we'll be able to have insight, so that we'll become wise, so that we'll behave morally out of concern for all beings. And I thought to myself, why don't we just start with the behave morally out of concern for all beings and forget about insight. You know, the, you know maybe it's, it's too hard to meditate. It's very hard to meditate. Why don't we just start, if that's what you get from it, why don't we just do it and forget this intermediary part? Well, you can't just do that either, it turns out, because you can't just say, ready, set, go, moral, because, uh, first of all, because you really don't have a lot of energy to do it unless you really see the suffering that's already inherent in life and the extra pain that's caused when you add to it unconsciously. You really can't do it. And the other thing is we're not awake enough to catch it all. I think it gets hidden. You know, the people who do the um, studies of near-death experiences have said, Ken Ring has written a couple of really interesting books on near-death experiences. People who fall out of off the Golden Gate Bridge or fall out of airplanes that crash but they get out or something, say that in the last seconds they see a complete readout of all of their transgressions of their lives. Now, is that amazing? You know, I wonder if that's true. I mean, I'd have to have a long fall, I think. <laughs> to see them all. You know, and I'm a pretty good person, but... You know, the here is slight, there is slight. You know, the the heavy ones, I think I've fixed up. I mean, haven't you fixed up the heavy ones? Yeah, the heavy ones we fix up because they're too painful. But, um, and when we don't fix them up, it's incredible to me. Painful. I read a story yesterday about a therapist. Of course, you always change the names when when you read a, an account of a therapeutic in, encounter. You, you never know who it is that you're talking about because it's uh, obligated that you change the names of everybody. But a therapist who was seeing someone who said that, among other things, she hadn't talked to her brother in uh, 17 years as of some slight. And, you know... I, I suppose in 20 or 30 years ago, this therapy has changed. It was much more, you let people alone, you let them figure out their own path, you talked about the pain they must have had that they didn't talk to the brother in 17 years. This particular therapist said, I'm going to give you homework. Go home and call the brother. <laughs> so she did. And the brother was extremely glad to hear from her. And they talked two hours on the phone. And then they met. And they made a repair. You know? And you think, maybe sometimes you just have to tell people. Fix it. You know? And maybe we just don't know that we can. And we spend a lot of time holding on to... So it's something about moral. Something about morality that we haven't learned. Clearly, we're not going to get through all of this stuff, so I'm going to tell you what I I really wanted to start with, and we'll restart from there last week. I really wanted to start with a quote from Emil Zola, which I uh, saw yesterday because I'm living up here, and I'm away from my uh, email, so I have to, uh, in my spare hours, run around and find a computer that people aren't on so I can be in touch with the rest of the world. And everybody, do you have things on your computer at home tacked on the frame of the computer? I have all kinds of... I, I have the precepts right in front of me on my computer. I have... Um, uh, I have a phrase from an early nun. So, I, a nun, trained and self-composed, established mindfulness, and entered peace like an arrow. I just love that. So that's next to the precepts. Uh, Another thing from the Dalai Lama over here. Anyway, 
So yeah, I like to use other people's computers because they have stuff around that, that also makes you feel good. So so I used a computer where someone had a uh, a piece of uh, advice from Emil Zola. And he said, when I reflect about the purpose of my life and why I'm here, I think to myself, I came to live out loud. So I like that a lot. So I, I went back and I talked to my teaching buddies last night, and I, th- I said, what do you think that means, live out loud? And Gil said, I think it means um, live honestly, live with complete... Right? He said, I think it means speak out and speak with complete integrity. Manifest yourself. Um, what do you think it means? What would you add to that? I like that fine. Yeah. To be brave. Yeah, to be brave. To be braver. Susan? Well, people are afraid to be themselves, hide that light under a bushel. You know, I mean, to me, that's what living out loud is, is to be the best you can be and not feel ashamed of it. See, that's, I'm very glad that you put that, Susan, because it's not only, not only people ashamed of themselves so they can't say, you know, this is what I am, but we're shy about showing, hey, this is what I am. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, could you turn to your neighbor now and say, hey, you want to know who I am? I'm Linda Trenholm. I am the most amazing Linda Trenholm I know. <laughs> you all say <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> say something to the person next to you about what you are actually. Say something about the most amazing wonderful. Introduce yourself. That's all right. When the Dalai Lama teaches uh, in the United States, he sometimes teaches with uh, uh, in psychology dialogues with psychologists. And uh, on several occasions, uh, he's learned it by now, but in the beginning, people would talk about the um, widespread um, low self-esteem that people have. And... At one point, someone called it self-loathing or something like that as a kind of a ubiquitous um, condition of uh, Western psyche. And uh, His Holiness didn't get it. And he would be talking to his uh, interpreter, what do they mean, you know, um, self-loathing? Or, and they go back and forth and back and forth. And then the, and the translator would keep trying to explain it to him. And then finally he got it. And he looked at people and he said, that's wrong. <laughs> you are wrong. It's not only His Holiness who's making it up. It's the Buddha said, if you go around the whole entire world, you will find no single being more worthy of your love than you yourself. No one. No one. You are a person. You, there is no single being more worthy of your love than yourself. The truth is, there's no one that you're more interested in than yourself. (laughs) Also, that's the truth. That's the truth. We we could make a case for, okay, my grandchildren, something or other, but 
we are interested in them because of us, you know, because they're my grandchildren. And, and, and you are most uniquely you. And the only way, really, it's a profound teaching, because the only way, really, to get around to having an open heart towards all beings and being able to love them, warts and all, just whatever anybody's got, is to be able to love ourselves, warts and all, whatever we've got. You know, when we just went around and said, you know, I, there was a, there was a uh, TV cartoon program when I, my children were very young, probably 40 years ago. I remember listening to it with my son as, he ate his, as we ate our breakfast together. It was probably on Captain Kangaroo. Who remembers that? They had a they had a they had a character called Tom Terrific. Do you remember Tom Terrific? I'm Tom Terrific, the greatest hero ever. Terrific is the name for me. Anyway, on and on. <laughs> the thing is, we ought to be able to say, "I am Tom Terrific. I cannot sing in tune." Um, I am I'm really an inveterate fretter. I'm getting a little bit better. We ought to be able to tell everything about ourselves. Maybe the place to end, since we're, again, coming back to that Zola, is I want to be able to live out loud, is I want to be able to be transparent. I want to be able to say to people, this is the whole of me, warts and all. I have anxiety about flying. Uh, it's the, you know, Where is Joe here to tell me? that it is second only to elevators in terms of modes of travel. But I don't like it anyway. And, uh, and I go, uh, and I talk too much, I monopolize too much of the conversation, and I'm pretty bossy. But I'm also kind. I, I'm also kind. I have good word use. I have a good heart. I care about people. It's lots of things. The whole package, this is the only Sylvia Borstein who's 65 years old, that God made at this point. And it's all right. This is it. This is it. More I don't know. So I think that that's what we're meant to do, live a transparent life, live out loud, not to be ashamed. And I think that's what we're trying to do. Trying to... It's hard to hide. And I think that's what it means when it says, don't fight with what things are, don't struggle. You want to say the serenity prayer one more time? Go ahead, do it. I'm impressed with how many people here know that prayer. I'm not surprised, I'm impressed. I'm pleased. It's 11 o'clock. I am still here through, uh, through, the middle of, uh, through the middle of March, and I'll tell you next week who all else will be here. Uh, I'll travel a fair amount in... Uh, oh, I have to... Up. I'll travel a fair amount in...